Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Few TV characters have made me laugh harder than Kevin Malone on The Office. Angela's cats are cute. So cute that you just want to eat them. But you can't eat cats. You can't eat cats, Kevin. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and on today's bonus episode, I speak to Brian Baumgartner, the actor who played Kevin for nine seasons on that iconic show, and yet sounds almost nothing like him in real life. Brian just launched his own podcast, An Oral History of The Office, where he talks to the cast and creators of that show about how it all came together and why it is even more popular seven years after it ended its run on NBC. On today's episode, he reveals which role he originally auditioned for, his favorite Kevin storyline, and the moment Steve Carell made him laugh the hardest on set. Okay, here's me with Brian Baumgartner. So, I mean, I guess we should start saying you're starting this podcast, uh, An Oral History of the Office, which when people hear this, at least the first episode will already be out. That's exciting. People can check it out. Is it all done already? Did you already record all of the interviews and all of that? Yes. We've assembled about 120 hours. Oh, my God. Of interviews. Right. And, I mean, it was a huge labor, but a labor of love. So we started recording back in December, meeting with cast, not just cast, but some of the key directors from the show and camera people, director of photography, network executives, because really we wanted to hear from everybody and get different perspectives on what the show was, how the show was constructed and why, at least potentially now, it's the most watched show in television and we haven't filmed in seven years. Mm -hmm. How did this come to be? How did you decide that this was something that you wanted to do? Well, Ben Silverman, who was the original person behind acquiring the rights and partnering with Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant, who started this whole thing with the British version, he started having an idea and approached me about putting together a podcast to tell our story. And for me, the thing that was interesting and, and that I wanted to explore was centered around a question why, which is why now, seven years since the show has been off the air, you know, we were the number one scripted show on NBC for a number of years. But why now, seven years later, is it even bigger than it was then? And why does the show appeal to young people, which was never a show that we thought we were making for young people, 11, 12, 13 year olds. Like, why are they watching? Who have never worked in an office. Who've never worked in an office. Right. The thing that I always said was, you know, when the show started, and I don't remember the number, right? But it was something like, well, 200 million people work in offices in the United States. So if some of those people relate to it, then that'll be our audience. But I think what we found, partly I think the show's subversive nature, partly I think its sensibility appeals to 
particularly high school, college kids, but now even younger, that there's a universality about the characters and what the show is saying that that gives it way broader appeal than we even thought at the time. I got to listen to the episode where you talked to everyone about their auditions and the casting process and all of that. You put a little bit about your own story in there, but I'd love to hear more about how you ended up getting cast on the show. Where were you in your career when this happened and how did you end up getting involved? Well, I was theater. I was doing theater and mostly regional theater. So like traveling around the country. And at that point I was doing big shows, you know, at different theaters, but I decided to move to Los Angeles and, you know, give it a shot in film and television. I say that I struggled hard for a number of years and theater is really hard. But once I moved to Los Angeles, I met Greg Daniels and Allison Jones, the casting director, about three, four months after I moved to town. So the time that I was in Los Angeles before The Office, there was not much time. (laughs) Yeah. I spent those early years traveling around the country and doing theater. Yeah. Well, one thing I didn't know that I learned was that you went in for the role of Stanley. I went in for the role of Stanley. Yes. And how did that go and how did it evolve? Well, I went in for the role of Stanley, but, you know, I was television interested me, but I was watching everything. And I had watched the British version of The Office very early. I was given DVDs of it and I loved it. And I knew that probably if, you know, being new in Los Angeles, if there was any role on not just The Office, but any television show that was casting for a new pilot that year, it was probably the role of Kevin, which came from the British version of Keith on The Office. And so I went in for Stanley, but I did Stanley as though I were Kevin. Because you wanted that role or you felt like you were best suited to it? Yeah. I thought that is the role that I should be playing. In the podcast, Jenna Fisher says about Pam, something very similar to what I just said. She said, if I'm not cast as Pam, then they're not doing the show that I think that they're doing because this is the perfect part for me. And I think in a lot of ways, that was how I felt about Kevin. So you go in, you you read for Stanley, but you're kind of doing the Kevin character that you ended up doing. So what happens? How'd you get moved over to the other role? I got lucky. They saw it and Allison ran after me. I was leaving and I was done and she ran, hey, we have this other role of Kevin. Would you give that a read? And I was, of course, internally thinking, yeah. My master plan has worked. Yes, it's all worked out. And so, yeah, then I went back in as Kevin and I think I met with them a couple of times through the process. But, you know, for me, here's a story that's not in the podcast, but it could be. It was probably cut for time. When Steve Carell left the show, there was a big party and like party because he was leaving. No, there was like a goodbye party. And Allison Jones came up to me, who was the casting director on the show. She said, hey, Brian, I was looking through all of my old documents about the casting and the pilot and, you know, trying to find something fun that Steve, you know, might enjoy. And she goes, I didn't really find anything that interesting for him, but I thought you would like to have this. And it was a piece of paper and it was the casting, like, final decision-making thing or whatever. And there were three names for the role of Kevin. There was Eric Stone Street, who now has done fine for himself on Modern Family, and Jorge Garcia, who has a great career and was on Lost and all of that stuff. And so just having that piece of paper, it's so crazy to me that if one of those guys got cast, then maybe I would have been on Lost. Like, I don't know. It's just a (laughs) funny, weird thing to look back on, but that's something I still have in my office today. So where did that voice come from and how did you, is there elements of you in Kevin or how did you come up with this character? I think that 
it a lot of it came from the writing. You know, the character of Kevin evolved quite a bit. I mean, if you go back or you ever watch the British version of the show, Keith, that's where it came out of. And in some ways, I feel like that character became a little bit more embodied in uh, Toby, played by Paul Lieberstein, in a weird way, just like very, very, very dry. And I think what happened was as, I mean, it really started in episode two, like just very small things where like everyone is in diversity day and everyone has the cards on their head. I mean, like small things. Everyone has the cards on their head and it goes back and suddenly the camera cuts over and you see everyone is done with that game and Kevin still has <laughs> Italian on his forehead. So I think there were little seeds of what he became, but but really as the writers started writing, for him and and finding where we wanted him to land my nerdy actor like creating a character and i need to justify it how i justify the changes that happened for him is very simple and very nerdy but when the camera crew came to dunder mifflin kevin was very very shy he was very shy and withdrawn and not really himself because it made him very nervous and then as he became more comfortable around the cameras more of his true personality and self came out. So there you have it. Do you have a favorite Kevin scene or storyline or or something that, that happened over the course of the series? Well, I would say my favorite storyline and probably the storyline that universally got the biggest laugh from reading the first draft from the table read was when Dwight tells Holly that Kevin is slow. I'm so glad that you said that because that's my favorite as well. Well, it's because I don't know. I mean, someone would have to go back and answer, but this is what it feels like to me, just like as a student of television and television comedy. Like, it might be the longest setup of a joke in the history. <laughs> I mean, a four-year setup for a joke, which I just think makes it all the more satisfying. Yeah, and Amy Ryan as Holly is so great. And so what was it like working with her on those scenes? And it seems like it must have been kind of hard to get through some of those. Yeah, people ask, you know, what was the most difficult to shoot and what scenes? I think there's sort of another kind of universal answer from a lot of us in the cast was when Kevin sat on Michael's lap as Santa Claus. Another classic. I mean, if you go back and you just look at the bloopers and then you go back and you watch it, you still see people laughing in what aired on TV because I don't think they had the coverage. Here's an example of when I was at the vending machine, Kevin was at the vending machine with Holly and she's trying to be helpful and help him <laughs> with the change. She starts going through the change and then she picks up and says, this is a button. And her <laughs> thinking that she had to explain to Kevin, who's working as an accountant <laughs> at Dunner Mifflin, that this was a button. And just her face and the look on her face, I could not not smile. And so basically I just was like, well, fuck it. I'm just going to smile, laugh. I'm just going to smile and I'm going to look into the camera <laughs> because I knew that it would cut perfectly with I'm totally going to bang Holly, right? Like he smiled. But the truth was I could not not smile when she did that. Do you need some help? I can't decide what to get. Well, what do you like to eat? Well, I like pretzels, but... I really like chips. Hmm. Well, how much money do you have there? Okay, let's see. 50. Oh, this is a button. Okay. 
65. Okay, you have 75 cents. So that means you could get anything up in the top row. I am totally gonna bang Holly. She is cute and helpful, and she really seems into me. So, I mean, you talked about how the show has become insanely popular with young people and on streaming and all of that. It must have affected your life in an interesting way because as much as you probably got recognized when it was on, do you get recognized and sort of called out and all of that more now than than when it was on? Yes. And part of the genesis around the podcast was that as well. Like the idea, like the show is so popular. And I remember I was having a conversation with Rain Wilson and I said, man, I was like, I feel like the show... You know, and this is over the last, like, three years, like, three, four years. I was like, it feels like it's as big as it was when we were, like, airing after the Super Bowl. And he said, no, it's it's bigger. And, I mean, it's true. You know, I mean, coronavirus time, now it's like I've got on a hat and sunglasses and a mask and someone is still coming up. <laughs> that person, I was like, is it my voice? Because my voice isn't even the same if you don't know how I really talk. And they were like, no, I know your eyes. I just, I know you. And I was like, that is so, it's so crazy. They've spent hours watching and rewatching you over and over again, probably. Everyone on the show, when you guys do interviews, always gets asked about the reboots and the reunions and all of that. And I think there's even more clamoring for it now because we've seen just over the last couple of months, there was a Parks and Rec reunion and now there's a 30 Rock reunion coming out and the show's going to be on Peacock and that's made people think, oh, maybe it's going Gonna, there's going to be something happening around that. What's your perspective on all of that? Is it something that you would want to do? Is it something that you think should happen? Because I know there's just varying opinions on it from the cast members. I think that a reunion of some kind absolutely makes sense. I think the question is what around what event are these people coming back together? And the Greg Daniels is a genius. And if he wants to come up with an idea, I'm sure that it would be great and everybody would be on board. But I don't know that that's really what people want. I don't know how satisfied that would make people. I mean, I think people, they want another 200 episodes of that show. <laughs> that is more difficult for a number of reasons. I mean, I was just talking to somebody else about this. Like, like my question kind of to people who ask that question is, well, how does that happen? Michael Scott now lives in Colorado with Holly. And Jim and Pam live in Austin. Kevin was fired and now owns a bar. Stanley's retired to Florida. On the surface... I just go, I don't know where the entry point is for that to happen again. And then I always joke, but Roseanne came back and John Goodman died. So anything's possible. So anything is possible, but I think those are problematic things. And due to the success of the show, I mean, including myself at certain times, the idea that all of those people would be free to come back to do and extend it. I literally don't know how that is possible. But again, who knows? I do wonder too if the the popularity, the continued popularity of the show goes against some of the arguments that people make about what's PC culture and what would be acceptable now because, you know, you have episode like Diversity Day, which was had all kinds of jokes that people would think might be inappropriate now. The storyline with Holly thinking that Kevin is slow could be offensive to some people, but yet the show remains so popular. So do you think it does kind of refute some of the arguments about what people might find 
find acceptable today? Well, yes. I mean, the short answer is yes. To me, the thing that is confusing, I try to be woke, but I've been told if you use the word woke, then you necessarily aren't woke anyway. Mm -hmm. But let me just say this. For me, I was tremendously proud of how the office dealt with a number of social issues during its run. Homosexuality, race, feminism, healthcare, to name just a few. I mean, like huge topics that really had not been addressed since, oh, you know, maybe all in the family in the 70s. So you're talking about 30 years of just trying to sugarcoat and whitewash, no pun intended, how those things, issues were dealt with in television. I was tremendously proud of it because it was all based in character. The example I like to use is Michael Scott saying to Oscar, what is a less offensive term than Mexicans? <laughs> like, very genuinely. He really wants to know, yeah. Really wants to know what is less offensive so he can make sure to call him that. And Oscar saying Mexican isn't offensive. Well, but you know, it has certain connotations. I mean, to me, that is, is the office at its absolute best, which is you have a character, Michael, who truly doesn't have bad intentions. He's just not at all woke. He doesn't understand. But what's important is that when he says things like that, it's everybody else in the office is uncomfortable with what he is saying. And so the message that it is sending is, oh, dear Lord, this person is so terrible. Like this person, you can't do that. Like you can't. And that's the message that comes from the show. So the idea that you couldn't make those jokes now because you can't say that when the message is actually right on point, this is something that just confuses me. Uh, truly. I'm like, I'm not being fun because to me, by him doing a Chris Rock routine, right? Like by him doing that and thinking that is okay and him taking over a diversity training seminar, like it's about everyone's reaction to that. And there's never any hint that everybody thinks that Michael is okay to do these things. So anyway, that's a long answer to your question. No, that makes sense. And I think the fact that it's so popular with young people really proves that. Yeah. Just to kind of wrap up, looking back, what is the impact of this experience of doing the show have been on your career? Because, you know, I think whenever you're an iconic character like this, there's that thing that happens where you are only associated with that character and it can make it harder to do other things. So how has that kind of worked out for you? Well, yeah, I mean, there's no question that it is a most significantly, it is a blessing, but there is also people who I'll go this far. There will be people who are listening to your podcast that hear this, that don't like it, that I sound different. They want to hold on to that. And to which I sort of go like, guys, I gotta do something else. <laughs> like, I'll give you a wink and a nod to it at times. But and so I think that part of it is difficult. I mean, we joke about it. like if you look at my social media post, if I post anything, I could post about golf, right, which I play a lot of golf. I could post about golf and there will be dozens, maybe, of people telling me not to spill the chili. And, you know, Angela Kenzie talks about the same thing. Like, if she posts with her husband on there, that especially, 
it will be like, oh, are you cheating on Dwight? There's like a crazy, and same with Rain. You can't escape it. No, you can't escape it. Like, that's all fine. I think the only thing that's weird to me is whenever someone's about to do that, are they thinking in that moment that no one else has ever <laughs> said this before? <laughs> that's the thing. They're like, this is going to be great. He's going to love this. I remember this goes back a number of years, and I'm thinking about it because I was just here at the American Century Championships, but I've played golf up here with Ray Romano a number of times. You know, they put the idiots together up here. And I remember us walking down the fairway one time and hearing just some guy yell, everybody loves Raymond. <laughs> and him sort of turning to me and going like, does he think no one has ever said that? And then laughing. He's like, "Has no one has ever said that to me. But I don't know, whatever. <laughs> you talked about some of these already, but is there a moment where you really laughed the hardest on set? What do you remember about the Santa Claus scene with Steve Carell? Well, that one was just, he's just such a genius. And I always say he made this sound right in my ear every time I sat down on his lap, which was something like, <laughs> like that, this weird inhalation, straining, painful. Th and every time he did it, I just could not. It was <laughs> so funny. That's so great. Hello, little boy. What's your name? Michael, it's me, Kevin. Phyllis says I'm too big for her lap. Oh, I am so sorry that Phyllis hates you and hates your body. But Santa remembers a reindeer that was just a tiny bit different as well. When can I sit on your lap? Right now. Come on over here, big boy. There we go. Oh, my God. Oh, that's really comfortable. What would you like for Christmas, little boy? I don't know. I, I didn't know you were going to ask me that. What did you think was going to happen? I didn't know. Nobody's ever let me sit on their lap before. All right, just say some toys, please. Uh, can you give me some choices? Because I really don't want to mess up on this list. Damn it, Kevin, come on. What about if I tell you the things I don't want? Okay, get off, get off. God. Oh, jeez. Oh, God! I didn't even get to tell you what I wanted. Okay, you know what you get? You get a thousand helium balloons attached to you so Santa doesn't have to go through this again. Awesome. Thanks so much to Brian Baumgartner for being my guest on this bonus episode. You can subscribe and listen to his podcast, An Oral History of the Office, exclusively on Spotify right now. And while you're at it, please give this podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Hold up. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know when Crystal Pepsi was discontinued? What was in Al Capone's vault? Or which famous meteorologist is Lenny Kravitz's second cousin? If not, then you haven't spent enough time on Wikipedia. But that's okay, because you can learn it all on the new podcast, WikiHole, from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes on Wikipedia with host and friend of the last laugh, Darcy Carden, and her favorite comedian friends, as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. And if you listen to WikiHole, you will learn that's the sciencey term for eardrum. WikiHole is a hyperlink roller coaster, starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to link to link to link, careening through trivia, oddities, and unexpected connections until everyone wonders, how the hell did we get here? Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.